This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Ann, and this is Safe Space, a show devoted to subjects that are hard to talk about because they make us feel vulnerable, afraid, or ashamed. This month, I'm doing a series on working with children and loss. My guest tonight is Joanne Anning. Joanne is a psychologist from England who is the coordinator of Jeremiah's Journey, which is an organization that offers support and information to bereaved children and their families. Joanne also works with refugee and asylum families around issues of loss. Welcome to Safe Space, Joanne. Thank you. I would like to start by asking you, how did you choose to go into this kind of work? Um, I guess I don't, I don't really think that I chose to go into this work. I think it chose me. Um, I was a psychology undergraduate at Plymouth University in England, and we had a lecture from um, one of the psychologists who worked with Jeremiah's Journey about her work with bereaved children. And at that moment, sat in the lecture, I just had this feeling, this knowing that I w- one day I would be with Jeremiah's Journey. And um, when I finished my degree, this was the job that came up. And my tutor rang me and said, you know, there's this job going with Jeremiah's Journey, you really need to apply. And I got the job, and seven years later, I'm still there. Well, every graduate's dream. I know. <laughs> <laughs> How wonderful that mm-hmm. worked out for you. And what do you think it was about this work that was so compelling for you that you just sat there and knew? Um, I think partly I've always been attracted to jobs that kind of go against the grain of society. I spent a year working with um, adults with long-term mental health problems and I love the challenge of working with something that wasn't often talked about in society that was you know in an area that where people were quite stigmatized by other people's judgments. Um, so I quite like the idea of working with issues that people aren't don't find so easy to talk about. You and I are kindred spirits, because that's exactly what the show is about. (laughs) Right, so you were drawn to something that people feel deeply about, but it's very hard to know how to talk about it, Mm. and it gets kind of shut out. Absolutely, and I think death is one of those subjects. It's still very taboo in our society. Yes, and so there you were. You were young, you were very excited, and you probably had some idea of what to expect. Did the job turn out to be what you had thought it would be, or how was it different? Um... I think it was what I hoped it would be and so much more. Um, my job is very varied to start off with. Um, I love working with children and I love working with families. Um, but also because we're a charity, we also do lots of fundraising things. So I've done some really mad things in my job as well, including, you know, trekking through a jungle in the middle of Thailand. And really? All kinds of, yeah, all kinds of exciting things. To so raise money? Absolutely, yeah. Oh, you have a great job. Yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> I see. So you weren't expecting it in some ways to be so glamorous. No, not at all. And here I am on the radio in America, which obviously adds to the glamour factor too. All right. (laughs) (laughs) So glad to help you out in that way. And all right. And then so it sounds like it was so much more varied. How about in the actual working with the children? Mm. Um, Were there surprises there for you? I think it surprised me in the way that children have an absolute... Um, you know enormous amount of inner strength that they bring to any challenge that they have in their life and I think we have a lot to learn from children and also I think as adults we try and um, make death a bit more easier to bear by using other language so you know describing people who's gone to sleep or passed away and children actually much prefer the factual information so they're much more able to deal with the hard words like death and dead um, which is more helpful for them but I think you know in that way they're more upfront about what's going on than than we can be as adults. Mm. And so tell me a little bit about 
maybe even if it's all right to tell a story of somebody who might come to you, how do they get referred mm-hmm. to you, and what kind of experience have they had that that leads them to you? Mm. Well, I mean, I guess most people now come to us because they've heard of us as a charity. Um, we, have, we have had people referred to us in the past, but I think it, it works much better if people are actually asking for the help themselves rather mm. than being told that they need help. Um, because I think, you know, when bereavements happen in families, families do have the skills and the resilience to deal with, you know, their grief. And actually, they don't often need to be pathologised. And so does coming to Jeremiah's journey, does it seem like you're being pathologized? Like, oh, hopefully not. Hopefully yeah. not. We are. We describe ourselves as a community service. We are, after all, funded by the local community. Um, so hopefully we are a service that responds to our community. And actually, at the end of the day, we are just real people. Right. So in some ways, you're again trying to work against that stigma mm. that it's not something wrong with you or you're doing it mm. badly that, that you could benefit from mm. this. And I think the other thing is um, work. I work. Our charity is located in a hospital, although we're separate from the hospital. But I guess in the medical model, everything needs to be fixed. Mm. And so if people um, have experienced a bereavement and they're grieving, they need that to be fixed. And often we get referrals from the medical profession to fix their grief, to make them better. And actually, you know, bereavement is something that happens to all of us at some point in our lives. And grief is a natural process. It's it's a response to, you know, losing someone that we've loved so much. Um, and so nothing, we can't fix it. There is nothing that anybody can do that can make it better because we cannot bring people back from the dead. And really it's about sitting alongside people. And I think sometimes in the medical profession that gets forgotten. Right. It's not very high tech. No. No. <laughs> and this country doesn't get reimbursed very highly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And, you know, it brings up for me the question about our relationship to crying. Mm-hmm. So often... In my work, patients will apologize if they're crying Mm -hmm. or feel they have to, you know, struggle quickly to bring it under control. Mm -hmm. And I wonder what message do you give the kids and families about crying? Hopefully a very strong message that it is okay to cry. It's okay to let out sadness. And I guess particularly for parents who are supporting children, often they will say, well, I, you know, I don't want to cry in front of them because I don't want to make them upset. But then the children say the same thing. Well, I don't want to cry in front of my mum and dad or whoever because I don't want to upset them. So there is this fear that in crying will make other people upset. So what we try and say to children and their families is that actually if you cry and somebody else cries with you, then that's okay. You're not making them upset. They are probably upset already. And what you're doing is allowing other people to share in your sadness. And that's okay. Mm, I know that parents often also sometimes feel that the child would be scared, not just mm. saddened, but scared as if the parent had somehow lost control or that the parent now needed to be looked mm-hmm. after. Mm-hmm. How do you address that? I, get, I guess, again, just reassuring everybody that it is okay to cry and we need to let our sadness out because if we don't, it kind of stores up inside of us. And for some, I guess, children in particular, you know, when emotions are kept inside, everything bubbles in under and then all of a sudden it bursts out like a big volcano. And that actually can be more unhelpful than letting out a bit at a time. Mm-hmm. So children come to you primarily because they've heard of you, often mm-hmm. because they've lost a parent. Is that the most... Um, yeah, there's a mixture. It's often because they've lost a parent. We do get children who've lost siblings. And increasingly in our society, we are getting children who've lost grandparents because actually grandparents are now, again, playing a more significant role in the family and doing more childcare. 
Mm, you mean because both parents are working? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And so a child comes in and has a first meeting with you, yeah. and then do you primarily work one-on-one? Is it groups? What What do you do with we, them? We try and fit with what the family needs. Is every family is individual. Every child is individual. The main part of the support we offer is through a group program. So we try and have children and teenagers and their parents and carers in groups where they would meet other people their age who may have gone through something similar to really break down that feeling of isolation. And so are the parents in the same group with the child or are they in their own separate group? No, they're in their own separate group. So everybody is in their own separate group but at the end of the evening they've all been to the same place. They've all had a shared experience and often you know, parents will say that when they're driving home in the car that's when their children will talk about what they've done in the group and it really does open up a conversation about how everybody is and, and what their experiences are. So often there's something about a car trip where there isn't direct eye contact. Yep, absolutely. That seems to make it safe <laughs> for kids yep. to really talk. And we, I mean, we also find that teenagers, so our kind of 11 to 16-year-olds, are probably the most reluctant to come along to a group or to come along for counselling or whatever you want to term it as. Um, but actually, once they've come to the first night and seen that it's actually not as bad as they thought it would be, the way the parents know that they want to come back is actually they're the first ones in the car every week, telling everybody else to hurry up. (laughs) (laughs) This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne. This is Safe Space. And my guest is Joanne Anning, talking about her work with bereaved children and their families. And so in these groups, do you also, um, other than really sitting with people while they're grieving Mm. and encouraging people to cry, are there things that you teach them? or Is there information that's helpful for people to have when they're grieving? I mean, I guess in the groups we try and leave it open, but we do do specific activities around feelings, so um, learning to kind of give our feelings names, and in that way it can help us think about how we might cope with them. Um, And the other main thing that we do is we acknowledge memories. Memories are a big part of our work. Um, We're actually based on a psychological model of grief called the Continuing Bonds model. Continuing Bonds? Continuing Bonds, yeah, which Mm. was developed over here. Um, And so we've based our work on that and really it talks about the importance of having an inner representation of the person who's died forever. So just because they're not physically here, it doesn't mean that we can't always hold a sense of who they were with us throughout our lives. And that's what we find particularly helpful with the children. So one of our main activities is to make a memory box. So to collect together all those things that help you remember the special person who's died. And do you encourage, do families ever come to you before the person has died? Yes, yes. I I do work with families um, where usually a parent is terminally ill with cancer. And in fact, we've just begun piloting a group for children who have someone really significant in their family who is terminally ill. And in that case, do you have the parent, I know some parents try to make a movie where they talk to the child Mm. or... They put together things to give mm-hmm. to the kids. Do you, do you encourage that? Yeah, we certainly suggest it. And we have had some parents. We had one mum, for example, who um, went out and bought her daughter's prom dress because she knew she wouldn't be there for her daughter's prom. So she went out and bought it, you know, a couple of years in advance, but it's there in the wardrobe ready. And, you know, her mum you know, knew that it was there ready for her and that was important to her. Something kind of heartbreaking about that. Mm. I imagine it's a really it's a yeah it is a really hard thing to think about when you're not going to be here but I really think it's important for all parents to think about that worst case and actually make preparations for their children because we do see children who have you know lost a parent unexpectedly sometimes 
and nothing is in place in terms of will and who will look after them and it's really important for children to know and I guess it's important for us as parents to know that our children will be taken care of if you know the worst happened. Right. Do you were I know you're primarily set up to work with the children. Do you help the dying parent in that case with their own feelings of sadness about leaving their child? Yes, we talk we talk with the dying pa- parent about how they might be able to talk to their child, maybe writing letters um, and doing things with their child now in a way that they can. Mm. I remember my own sadness as a parent, realizing I wasn't going to know all of my child's life. <laughs> Even though I'm not anticipating anything immediately. No. Right, but mm. when you love this small being so much, mm-hmm. you wish to be part of Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yes, it's mm-hmm. a whole other level of grief. Mm-hmm. I, I want to ask you now about... Um, how children blame themselves. I know mm-hmm. as a psychiatrist, so often when bad things happen to children, they feel somehow that they were responsible. And I wonder, do you see that? And if so, mm-hmm. how do you work with that? Mm-hmm. Um, we sometimes see it when children have lost a sibling. Because I, I can remember fighting with my little brother when I was younger and you kind of think, oh, I wish she'd go away or I wish she was dead. You know, those kinds of thoughts that we have in anger. And then when it actually happens, children can feel in their own kind of imagination with their own sense of magical thinking that actually it's their fault, that they wish that. And now their brother or sister is dead and it must be all their fault. Or, you know, if you've had an argument with your dad and he was really cross at you, and then he dies, then maybe it was your fault because you made your dad cross. So children use their own kind of fantasy to work out what's happened if they're not given a lot of factual information. So your remedy for that is to really help them with the facts about why this person yeah, died. And do right. you address directly that fantasy that somehow it was their fault? Yes, we try and... I. What I do when I work with children is try and second guess to say, you know, I wonder, you know, some of the children that I've met sometimes think that if they've done something wrong and then the person dies it's their fault just to raise it in the room yes because I think children will often if they think it they won't voice it because it's too scary to voice so I think it's about giving that feeling a voice so you name it as just a possibility you sort of wait to see if they respond Yeah. yeah and children will either say no that's not what I thought at all or actually yes I did think that yeah mm-hmm. another thing that I've encountered in, again in adults is the feeling that the, their their mother or father didn't love them and they left mm-hmm. as if somehow the parent didn't want to be alive mm-hmm. anymore mm-hmm. and I'm curious if you see a lot of that and how you address we, that. I certainly see that with families where a parent is terminally ill the children can often feel very angry at that person because you know dad can't run around and play football anymore in the garden and, and that's not fair so they will often be angry at the person who's going to die because they're not doing the things that they normally did and they're not there for them in the same way that they were. Mm. So in that case, it's more anger before they die. Yeah. What about after? Because I know we have almost a taboo about speaking ill of the dead. Mm-hmm. You know, once someone has died, we want to just remember them in glowing ways. And yep. It's hard to hold the reality of the, com- you know, we're all mm-hmm. complicated. Yeah. <laughs> and um, do you find that children also feel that taboo? Um, well, I hope not. In the groups, um, we although we make the memory box, which holds on to those really good memories of the person who's died, we also take time to acknowledge that there may be some bad memories. And we set, I mean, I can certainly remember one girl who came to the group whose mother had died. She'd um, used drugs for a number of years before she died. And consequently, um, she'd, during her drug use, she, uh, she and her daughter used to 
go into shops and steal things to get money for drugs. So although this girl had very good memories of spending time with her mum, she also had those memories of being made to go into a shop and steal things for her mum. Um, so I think, yeah, we do have children where there is this these good memories, but there also there are some bad memories. So I think it's about acknowledging that we can have all different kinds of memories. And so, the, but they don't put those in the actual, in the book. The book is mostly no. About- the box is all the really nice special memories, and we have a special yucky bad memory box. So um, the children can write down or draw their bad memories, and then we have a box where they put all their bad memories in at the end, and we sellotape it up. And I actually keep the bad memory box, and they take their nice memories home in the nice memory box. What do you do? Burn it. What do you do with it? I can't tell you. It's a secret. (laughs) (laughs) I keep them very safe so they can't get out. I see. (laughs) All right. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne. This is Safe Space, and I'm talking to Joanne Anning about working with bereaved children. So you've said a number of things that are very helpful to do Mm -hmm. with children. What are some things that you help parents learn that that are not helpful? I guess the, the main one is about excluding children. Um, and I guess, you know, as parents, natural instinct is to protect children. Um, and But that can mean that sometimes children are completely excluded from rituals around death, so things like funerals or going to see the body, or maybe just not told why the person died. Um, so I think that those are the things that we fi- actually find children tell us are unhelpful. They like to be included, um, as they worry about what's going on and they're not allowed to know. Um, and they like to be given choices about going to the funeral and going to see the body. And so parents are protective, which is why they're not mm. sure whether to bring the child. Is it ever destructive to bring a child to see the body or to go to a funeral? I think it could be if it's against their choice, if they're not told about what's going to happen. But I, th- I think as long as children... And even young children, you know, they're explained to what what they might see if they go to a funeral, what might happen, what what might happen if they go and see the body. As so long you really as prepare them. Absolutely. And as long as they're told and given a choice, then I think that that's fine. Mm, important to know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to shift now a little bit to your own experience. Mm-hmm. Um, when you were a child, did you have important losses? I didn't until I was 19, and my grandfather, who I'd been very, very close to, had died. So I don't have experiences to draw on that helped me inform my work. However, since I've been in the post at Jeremiah's Jenny, I have had other experiences which have, I guess, given me a better insight into what some of our families have to experience. Would you be willing to tell me a little more mm, about that? I mean, I guess... Um, my mum <laughs> has been really helpful. Um, she's ha- actually had breast cancer. So um, that was a really, I guess, looking back now, I can say it's an interesting experience, although at the time, obviously, it was absolutely devastating. Um, but it did help me understand a bit better what it must be like to have somebody with a diagnosis, a parent with a diagnosis of cancer, mm-hmm. and all the fears and the emotions that that brings. And did you find, because of the work you do, that you talk to her about it in a different way? No, I found that because of the work that I do, I was um, labelled in the family as the one that could deal with it and the one that everybody else could talk to, which um, was was very nice. Um, you know, I'm quite happy to be helpful to other people, but it meant that at times I wasn't allowed the space to kind of deal with my own emotions. Right, you were sort of the designated helper. Yes. Yes, and... For, I know in some families, actually talking directly about dying or the mm-hmm. possibility of dying is very, very hard to do. Mm-hmm. 
did you find yourself wanting to bring up that subject or how did that play itself out in your family? Um, I get I mean I guess I I do feel that I'm very comfortable at talking about death and talking about my own death and thinking about dying um but the culture of my family is that you don't talk about it so though I'm quite happy to talk about it um there were no permissions to yes and I, was that difficult for you Yes, because as I say, I'm quite happy to talk about it. It really doesn't bother me. And I, I, I guess there's this superstition in my family that if you talk about it, then you'll make it happen, um, which I guess is, you know, one of those beliefs that families have. But for me, you know, that's not the case, and I'm quite happy to talk about it. Right, I think many people have the belief that if you just keep a positive attitude, yep. you actually have a better chance, and there's somehow it's almost actually bad for you to talk yeah. about it. Yeah, and it's, I guess it's keeping that hope alive, isn't it, and not letting the negative thoughts in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that you're also fairly comfortable thinking about your own death. Yep. How has how has this experience working with these kids and families? How has it shaped how you think about your own death? I think it's made me quite open to think about it, and I think you know we all need to think about it because actually you know the families I work with they have the most awful tragic things happen to them completely suddenly and out of the blue and actually it's really made me think that every day that we have is a precious gift and we have to cherish every day because who knows what tomorrow might bring um, and I think it's also important that we all have ideas about what we'd like to happen after we've died. I want to be cremated and I want my ashes scattered with glitter in so that I'm all sparkly. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't heard that one before. <laughs> do you know where you want them scattered? No, I haven't thought about that, but I do want to be sparkly. I'm very clear about that. I see. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like you are now. <laughs> and um, does it make you think too about how you want to die? You know, in terms of where and with people... I guess we all have a fantasy about kind of dying in our sleep peacefully. Um, no, I, I think quick and painless for me. <laughs> uh-huh. It's interesting because I know some people who work with the dying actually don't want that because they want the chance to say mm. their goodbyes or they want to make the video. for. Their... I can see the advantages of both, actually. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. Um Another subject that I know that people who work with the dying come up against is their their patients asking them kind of more metaphysical or spiritual mm-hmm. questions. And do the children talk to you about what do they think happens after death? They do occasionally. And we, we're not based in any one religious or spiritual belief. So we leave it very open to um, what the children believe already. Um, I guess, you know, we talk about always remembering the person who's died. So that's the way we think about it. But children do talk about heaven or people being up in the sky, um, those kinds of things. And that's fine. And do you ever do um, sessions where you're actually facilitating the parents and the kids to talk to each other? Yes, yes, we do. I mean, part of that actually is done in the group anyway, as I mentioned earlier. But yes, we do do sessions at home with families as a way of giving them space to be able to talk about what they're all experiencing. I can imagine um, that the, some kids really don't talk much about it or, or mm-hmm. don't express their grief and that the parent actually has a wish for the child to talk. Mm-hmm. And... Um, What's your message there? I mean, do we just all grieve differently or how? 
I think we all grieve differently at different times and I think it's about acknowledging that. Um, but that can be really difficult in families where somebody might be really angry and somebody else might want to just get on with things and um, somebody might want to sit and cry all the time. So I think it's about having a balance really and respecting each other. I know there are statistics that suggest when a couple loses a child that the mm. risk of their relationship you know, falling apart is very high. Mm. Do you see... In the, your situation is obviously different where it's actually the the adult who has died or maybe the sibling. Mm -hmm. Do you see that these are families at, at particular risk in certain ways or the things that you try to prevent or help them know, anticipate might happen in the long run? I mean, I guess the families that we see that are particular risk, I mean, we certainly had um, teenage you know, adolescents who have had... Um, where their family has been separated, so they've been living with one parent and rarely see the other parent. And then all of a the sudden their main parent, the main caregiver, dies. And then they're left with the decision about who did they go and live with. And they're then thrown back into living with the parent that they haven't seen for a long time and having to adjust. And I think those relationships, those family relationships, are, are at risk um, because they're so precariously balanced. Yes, and I can imagine the parent who has not been the primary caregiver you know, they sort of, there's a whole new reacquainting relationship. Mm. And who knows why they weren't the primary parent to begin mm. with. And also, I guess, you know, the the parent who hasn't been around may have, you know, found a new partner and made their own life. And maybe d doesn't want to grieve for the per the other parent who's died. So then the teenager who perhaps does want to grieve is then in this kind of funny place where everybody around them is getting on with their life as as always and yet they need to grieve for, for their parent who they loved and were close to. Right, so suddenly they're quite isolated within mm, their new family. Their own, yep. Yes, I yep. can imagine that's very difficult, yep. so hence the value of the group. Yeah. Yes. Yep. So for you, back to you more personally, <laughs> um, are you a parent? No, I'm not. And how, how so you work with children, you work I with do. children who are grieving. Mm -hmm. how, how has it affected your feelings about being a parent? Um, I guess... I think meeting lots and lots of families, I guess it's made me realise that there is no such thing as a perfect parent. <laughs> so I have Very no good hopes. way to go in. <laughs> I have no hopes about being a perfect parent. Um, and I guess we, you know, the parents that I've met make decisions that, you know, they feel right for their child at the time because actually parents know their children best. And we can all say with hindsight, I wish I'd done things differently. But I think, you know, I'm not going to pay any attention to hindsight. <laughs> <laughs> so in a way, it sounds like you're saying you know that you already need to be forgiving of yourself yep. before you even start. Mm -hmm. So helpful. Um, I've been doing a series on this show on bad mother anxiety. Right. And so many mothers struggle so, so deeply to fear that they're not doing this right. Their mm -hmm. child's going to need a therapist when they're yep, older. Absolutely. And I think forgiving ourselves as mothers mm -hmm. is such a challenge. Mm -hmm. I hope you're able to hold on to that. Uh, well, maybe. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> Should you go down that path? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, so in closing, I wonder, you know, if there are people listening to this show who are facing um, the loss in their family where children are involved, are there anything you, you especially want them to know that might be helpful to them? That, 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 you know, if you just had to say one thing, and I know that kind of puts you on the spot, mm. but 
I'll talk for a bit to give you, I'll stall for you to give you a little time. (laughs) What would be some of the things, just sort of like touchstones that they could hold to that might be helpful for them as they try to be there for their child as much as possible? I think it's really about not being afraid to cry, which brings us back to what we talked about in the beginning, because I think, you know, children... It's okay for parents to cry in front of their children. And when something really sad is happening in your family, then it's okay for children to get a clear message about what you do when you feel sad and for families to share in their sadness together. But I think at the same time, it's okay when something sad happens in the family for families to be able to laugh and have fun together too. That sounds great. If someone wanted to know more about Jeremiah's journey, Mm -hmm. is there a website or a way that they could learn Mm, more about it? There is. Our website is um, www.jeremiahsjourney.org.uk. Say that again, www.jeremiahsjourney, which is all one word. No apostrophe. No apostrophe. .org.uk. Joanne Anning, it's been such a pleasure to have you on Safe Space. Thank you. It's been an honor. Thank you for being here. My name is Dr. Anne. This is WMPG. We've been talking about working with bereaved children and their families. My thanks tonight to Jen Hodgson for mixing the sound and Maurice Lennon for the music. If you have a request or a suggestion for a future topic for this show, please email me at org. That's dr.annewmpg at, I, I, it's not, I gave you the wrong address, Dr. Ann, WMPG at gmail.com. Coming up next is Money Talks with Allison.